0: What truly matters is teachers' expertise.
1: The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries.
0: 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage.
2: Hello and welcome to Episode 3 of the Education Research Reading Room, a podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's my pleasure to be your host. For this episode of the ERR. This week we're talking to Tom Bennett about his paper, The School Research Lead. Tom Bennett is the founder of Research Ed, a grassroots organization that seeks to raise research literacy in education. Since 2013, Research Ed has visited three continents and six countries, attracting thousands of followers. In 2015, he became the UK government school's behavior tsar, hope I said that right, advising a behaviour policy. He's written four books about teacher training and in 2015 he was long listed as one of the world's top teachers in the GEMS Global Teacher Prize. In the same year he made the Huffington Post Top 10 Global Bloggers list. His online resources have been viewed over 1,200,000 times. Now that is impact. (laughs) We had a great discussion with Tom and he's absolutely hilarious as well as insightful. I trust you'll enjoy hearing all about Tom's organisation, Research Ed., Uh, their research ed conferences as well as what exactly a research lead is and why research leads matter. On the topic of research ed, I'm really excited to be able to announce that Tom will actually be coming to Melbourne in July to hold a research ed event in conjunction with the Australian College of Educators National Conference. The event hopes to step outside of the usual conference box to promote innovation, connectivity and professionally relevant tools for educators across all sectors and systems. It will do this by Instead of delivering a number of keynote speakers, solely it will have a more diverse program. It will have things like mini masterclasses as well as the the global phenomenon of research ed uh, with Tom Bennett, which you'll hear all about in just a moment. So watch this space. In the ERRR this week, along with our main guests, we had a great group of passionate teachers and educators. We had Ed, Beth, Helen, Jen, Catherine and myself. This was our first online podcast recording, so you may notice the sound diffs a little from our usual podcasts, but fortunately it doesn't get in the way of Tom's message. Our other educators in the room this episode were a little quieter than usual, which was great for me because I got to ask Tom all the questions I had for him. As we step into the ERRR, I'd just like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation on which this podcast was recorded. As always, show notes and links to our previous podcasts can be found at that's com forward slash podcast, as well as links to sign up to attend the live recordings of future ERRR episodes. A big goal of the ERRR is to foster the education community in Melbourne, so if you're an educator or interested in education at all, we'd really love to have you along. So without further ado, let's jump into the ERRR. Thanks so much, Tom, for joining us. The question we often start off with the start of these podcasts is if you're at a party and you meet someone for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? What's usually your answer?
1: Oh, that's, that's kind of unfair because when you're a teacher, and I, I, I stopped teaching about six months ago. Or rather, I'm on a sabbatical. I don't know which one it's going to be yet. It's dead easy to say I'm a teacher because you've got one of these one-word professions. Now I've got one of these careers that sounds like Chandler Bing from Friends is trying to describe what he does. You know, I've got a career kind of portfolio. Okay, so I'm the founder and organizer of ResearchEd, a conference-based organization which seeks to raise research literacy in the teaching profession. Do coaching. I'm a teacher, trainer, coach, and author. There you go. Kept it, kept it short.
2: Right. What a pitch. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Could you give us a little bit of a background about how you came to be where you are today?
1: In terms of research ed?
2: Research ed, and yeah, like a little bit of a story. What were you doing before, before teaching, if you did anything? That oh, kind
1: of- sure. Oh, you went the years when I was a bum. Okay. <laughs> I, I had a, a, kind of an odd introduction to teaching. I, I, I was a nightclub manager in Soho in the West End of London for about 10 years. Which was a you know the, 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 an obvious introduction into education, um, and that was kind of fun, but it was a bit of a burnout profession. I saw an advert for teaching, and you guys must get this a lot. You know, you get you know with adverts for teaching occasionally, and a light went off in my head, and it was it was the best choice ever made. So I started teaching about fifteen years ago. Uh, at the same time, I've always loved writing, so. I write a lot for journals and so on. So I did that at the same time as teaching. I found that writing about teaching was was one of the most rewarding things you could possibly do. It was the best of both worlds. So after teaching for about 10 years and making every mistake that there was, I um, started to write books about how not to be as awful as I was at the start of my my career. So, you know, (laughs) I don't come from a position of huge expertise. I come from a position of experience. And then I perceived that there was this really big gap in education where a lot of what we were doing in the classroom wasn't particularly evidence-based and a lot of the uh, research and the evidence that was getting into classrooms was essentially quite corrupt and, and, and just really poor quality data. And as I started to investigate that and investigate the things that I'd been taught in the beginning of my teaching career, I started to find that a lot of what we'd been taught wasn't absolutely true. And then I started to find out that the, the quality of education research wasn't always what it could be. Um, and as a practitioner, that really concerned me. So I formed ResearchEd, which was meant to be a one-day kind of a pop-up conference just to bring together different voices in the education communities. And I really wanted to bring together teacher voices, but also academic voices, intermediaries, charities, policy leaders, school leaders, bring them all into the same space and have a conversation about what evidence meant to them and what evidence was informing not just classroom practice, but also um, policy practice and, and leadership you know school strategy practice and it's been fascinating and it's just taken off since then it's achieved a life of its own so weirdly enough the books have taken a bit of a uh, of they're in the shadows just now for me and i'm now focusing a lot more on research yet because it's it's taken off so much i don't know if that's the answer you're looking for but that's roughly how i came here
2: no that's great that's a really good background my next question was there a specific moment where you were really like wow this you know this research practice gap this is just way too big we need to do something about it and you know i'm inspired enough to do something
1: yeah, listen, I'm always happy to take, take credit when I can, uh, but I also have to not take credit when I can. I had written, I'd already written a book called Teacher Proof, which was a kind of an angry reaction to being a teacher practitioner in a world where um, the research was just junk. So I'd already kind of done that. And I guess my, my kind of my eureka moment for that was when I trained to be a teacher, I, 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 I was on a special program. do you guys have anything like this? It's called Fast Track. It doesn't exist anymore. It was meant to be for recruits from business because I'd run nightclubs and so on, and older people as well. Because I was 30, which is like ancient, and we were we were pulled into teaching. And one of the things we were trained in in this this you know special course for teachers was uh, neurolinguistic programming (NLP). Do you guys are you familiar with NLP? Catherine's
0: facepalm, and then banging my head on the
1: table. Yeah, the older and wiser. Members of your room will be nodding at this point. Neural Linguistic Programming, the so called Science of Success by Handler and Grindr. Um it's, it's essentially a lot of junk. And it was one of the things we were taught to use a lot as teachers. It's kind of. If, do you guys know Dead and Brown over there? Do you have someone like that? That's not I've a heard good idea. Brown. No, never mind. Sorry. Culturally non specific reference here. So coming across things like that really uh, showed me that there's just. So much of what we did in teaching was—it well, wasn't—it wasn't just poor evidence. It, it was junk evidence. You know, it was pseudoscience. It was homeopathy. And I thought that was that was a terribly tragic problem for children, for teachers. When you consider that, um, you know, for most kids, school is their one chance in education, and they don't make time anymore for other people. So you know, it's 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 kind of important. The book was great, and I enjoyed it. And I used to write and blog angrily about poor teacher research, so things like learning styles and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard of learning styles. I mean that's, that's, I mean, that's kind of international. Again, you know, there's not a scrap of evidence behind learning styles. There's not any evidence to suggest, not only is there a mechanism where they would work, but also that using it in, in any way would assist your students' progress. So, you know, it's, it's essentially junk science. And the thing is, people knew it was junk science when it came out. Decades ago. I mean, people were criticizing it even then and yet it got into the classroom. So that those were my kind of moments when I realized I was using things which were actually just a load of rubbish in the classroom. And then one one evening I was on I was on Twitter as I am occasionally. I essentially live on like social media. Now. And um, I was talking to a couple of people in the UK, one of which was a guy called Ben Goldacre. He's quite famous over here for writing a book about bad science. And uh, these people just kind of they dared me as a bet to say, well, why don't you, you know, if you, if you care so much about teacher research, why don't you run a conference? And it really was just kind of a Twitter dare. And so I put one tweet out which said, would anyone like to help me put together a conference in the UK? Wow. And by three o'clock in the morning, I had like, you know, 300 responses. And I was up all night just responding to all these people. So obviously there was a taste there. And that for me was a real Rubicon when I realised that it wasn't just me that was thinking this, but there was a load of other people out there too.
2: Cool. Just to get a. An idea of the percentage buy-in at this point. You said you had three hundred responses by three in the morning. How many, yeah. fo- how many followers did you have at that point?
1: I don't know, twenty-five thousand or something.
2: Okay, cool. Pretty good. Yeah, race.
1: so I had a reason for a teacher. I guess I had a reasonable social media reach. It's weird because we started a Twitter account for Research Ed just a few weeks later, and we had about you know eight thousand followers in Perfect. a few months. Yeah, you know, which, which is great. Uh, and it means I can, I can bug people a lot less by using my main account. But I think we're, I can't remember. I, haven't, I never really checked these things. I think we're in 12,000 now or 14,000. So, you know, we're, we're doing fairly well with that. And I think Twitter and social media was a, a really large part of the kind of catalyst behind this. Because you may have had teachers before, say 10, 15 years ago, who were really keen on research or who, or, or who, or who thought that teacher practice could be radically changed by focusing on evidence. But there might be one person in every school, you know, and they may not know that everybody else thinks the same way as them. The great thing with social media is, of course, you can create these, these communities internationally and nationally from people who live in very, very remote locations. But all of a sudden you have a community. And when you have a community, you have a tipping point. Mm. So, you know, that's really what's going kind to of make it happen. It's one of the reasons I'm talking to you right now is the fact that um, the conversations that you can have as a school teacher in one country can be heard instantly instantly in the next whereas 15 years ago you've you may have had a bright idea in the back of your classroom but the far the furthest you're going to reach with that idea is your staff room Mm. if you're lucky you know so it's it's a a completely different world now in terms of communication
2: so off the back of that last conference i mean obviously had a lot of buy-in i i assume it was a a rip-roaring success
1: rip-roaring absolutely
2: good to hear but you know there are a lot of great conferences around education, but they don't all spawn really healthy and vibrant organizations. So I'm wondering what you think it was about that first event. How were the conversations that came out of fostered and nurtured to the point that we've got now research ed, you know, all over the world, essentially?
1: Well, again, you know, I'm, I'm very happy not to take credit at times. Like research ed happened almost despite me rather than because of me. I know, I'm, I know I'm just putting myself down constantly here, but it's true. When I had the first conference, I mean, I was, I was astonished by the enthusiasm that people had for it. There was clearly something going on there already that people were interested in that, that intrigued them. Um, as I say, I mean, I was up all night that night answering calls from people who wanted to present, speak, host, sponsor, you know, hand out T-shirts, print T-shirts, design logos. You know, they clearly would struck something. There was a seam there which was just dying to get it out. Little did I know that this seam was also international. That, um, there were communities of people all across the world who thought in uh, very similar ways. We had the conference; it was a great success. We sold out in about three weeks. Uh, we had about 600 people there, but we had a waiting list of 200. So that was our first one. I think the last one was approaching almost a thousand people. I intended that to be it—just one, you know, one-day conference. I assure you, it was like a six-month heart attack putting it together. Um, and I thought, oh, that's it; it's done now. You know, it was great. Wasn't it awesome? And people just kept saying, "When's the next one? When's the next one? When's the next one?" And again, that was social media. The people, people who would heard about it and couldn't get there, wanted to come. So there were there was already a very very strong existent um, desire amongst some teachers, just enough to bring more evidence into their practice. Who wanted to question and query the practice of the past few decades and were very excited at the prospect of doing so. And I think that there's there. I mentioned already social media is one of the key catalysts for this movement whatever you want to call it i think one of the, the one of the other catalysts is the fact that historically educators i mean teacher practitioners are very often the very last to be consulted when it comes to classroom practice when it comes to policy and pedagogy and that very very often decisions are made about the classroom by people who are very very remote to classroom practice itself um, i like to call I like, I like to fancifully call this teacher voice uh, and I'm sure in Australia things are are, 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 are much better. It's not perfect, but certainly in the UK we've got organisations which represent different strata of, ed- of 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 education. But teachers are represented solely by unions, and that's a great thing. And unions are very necessary, important. But what unions don't often do is, is 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 tackle things like pedagogy and classroom practice. They tend to be more about terms of conditions. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a vast gap in the market for that. So these are all very long answers for very short questions. Mm. I guess we're going to get to like, you know, till, till you know, midnight for you guys. That's all right. I'll do my best.
2: Thanks for that, Tom. So another thing that often happens at conferences, in my experience, is often teachers will go along, they will get inspired, they'll, they'll come up with a few ideas or they'll go away with a few ideas, maybe try them out in in the classroom a couple of times, but then it won't actually become part of their everyday practice. And it won't, sure. be, won't have this accumulative effect of improving teaching. It'll be like a spike. And then, and then we go back to kind of, yeah. but, so how, how do you think research ed is really supporting and supporting and nurturing teachers to kind of keep that momentum?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of these things that I wasn't too concerned with at the time. Uh, you know, we just wanted to start having great conversations, but once we've been going for a while, I started to think, well, what is our impact here? You know, I, How can we guarantee it? And do we have any impact? Sorry, an enormous hand just appeared there. Terrified me. Pardon me, have you ever read any Plato? Plato says something interesting about morality. He says that once you've seen the right path, the right moral path, he said you cannot help but choose it. Uh, I don't know if that's entirely true or not, but it's a bit like once somebody, once somebody shows you the best way to get to the shops from your house, or the best way to use the tube or the underground, you never not use it. You, know, you never use it. Listen to me, seven o'clock in the morning, you, know, you, you, you would never not do the right way again because once you've been shown the right way, it just makes sense and you just can't do it. But I, I mean, think-
2: that, that, that way of the tube is easier for you, but sometimes the, the changes for the teacher doesn't necessarily mean it's easier for them.
1: Oh yeah, no, absolutely, no. no I mean, and, and also, my USP, if I have one, is that I'm a teacher, you know, or or I've been a teacher for for, for a while. I come at this very, I come at this very much from the teacher's perspective. Um, I am not an academic. I'm not a researcher. I'm never trying to claim to be. So if I ask myself, what impact could this have on a teacher? And I will give an example. Once you have looked at some some of the work by, say, Dan Willingham, or once you've looked at some cognitive psychology, once you've understood how it is that children focus, um, what, how many things people can focus on, uh, how long people can concentrate for, what kind of things aid retention. And once you've used them in practice in your classroom, it's, it, I hate to use the word obvious because you know obvious can hide a lot of sins. But once you've used these things, you just think to yourself, well, yeah, that really does work. And, 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 and that's how it gets traction with teachers. You can pick up some really simple ideas which can have really, really big effects in your classroom practice. And once you see it in, in, in practice, then it's, it's really, really useful. And also to be honest, we get about, I think research reaches about say 4% of teachers in the UK, four or 5% in terms of people who have attended our conferences or engaged with us online. Now that's not a huge amount, but it's enough. You know, and it's enough for people to start sharing ideas and disseminating these ideas and ideas are infectious. So that's, that's, how, that's how we see change. And also, we, know, we now survey people that come to our national conferences, and we just ask them straight out, has coming here made a difference to your practice? And they just go, yeah, yes, it has. You know, I, I now do things differently because I realise there are different ways to do it. But that might be a feature of how far we have to come in education, because I think a lot of people haven't received much credible, sensible teacher training since their, since their initial teacher training period. Uh, and continuing professional development and continuing training is another huge issue we have over here, and I know in some other countries too. Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling now. Carry on. No, I'm
0: I'm sort of interested in it. I've kind of gone a bit lateral after the question that Ollie asked, but, you know, in terms of the changing basis of expertise as they develop through the professions, teachers in the novice, advanced novice kind of phase, they do want, uh, I don't mean, they, they do want things that they can do, but much more powerful. But what is more powerful is understanding principles because from principles you can derive yeah, a whole lot yeah, of okay. specific practices. And I think, you know, what you're talking about there with cognitive psych, hello, that's me, I'm a cognitive psych. Um, yeah, we love you. Oh, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't. Lots of them don't love us, Tom. No, no, no. Because they want to keep teaching the same tired old crap that's been taught for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's just my little bugbear. But, yeah, so it's with the early career teachers, you're going to be, they're going to be looking for things they can do. They can roll out in the classroom. But the more powerful thing, and people come to understand this after they've been practising for a couple of years, is the, having the principles that then you can then derive practice from those principles. That's not a question. That's an observation. I'm giving the mic back to Olly.
1: <laughs> I loved it. That was one of those questions, wasn't it? That was a conference question. You should put a question mark at the end of it and just you know pretend. Can I just say something on that? Can I just respond? That's right, Tom. Which is that um, my ambition with the research head isn't to make teachers into researchers, or not all teachers into researchers. Some will be, but it's not for everyone. And nor should it be, because teaching is a, is a, is a craft and a practice and a profession which takes up a lot of our time. We've, and I've, I've done some work with the UK government about trying to improve the research literacy of teachers and one of the things we, we we came across quite quickly as a rather obvious thing was that in teacher training you can't make a teacher into a researcher but what you can do is a you can make sure that the kind of principles they're taught are evidence-based so rather than teaching them um things like you know group work must be compulsory for everybody which is one thing i learned on, on my training course everybody should do group work um, rather than group work can work contextually um, some principles like that, even if they don't necessarily understand the principles behind it too much, as long as they're getting the good stuff, you know, that's that's a start. But also, as you are saying there, you want to teach them some basic research literacy skills so that they can then interpret, uh, analyse, process and, and criticise research that they see, or even not necessarily research. But if somebody tries to introduce an intervention, a policy or a strategy in a school, every teacher should have at least a critical faculty to go, well, that's fine. What evidence do you have to support this strategy? You know, and if and if the the, the and if the manager, the teacher manager, wants to say, well, I don't, I just it's just a hunch, it's an intuition, or it's a value, then that's fine too. Because often we make decisions based on hunches and intuition and value. But at least we know it's based on that, rather than somebody coming along and saying, yes, this is the best way for you to teach, and this is what we what we must do. So there's kind of two levels of literacy. There's the unco- almost the unconscious literacy, and there's the, there's the conscious literacy. And you'll get a small percentage of that second group who then go on to formal research. And we see, you know, we do see teachers doing uh, master's degrees and PhDs and so on. And that's great, but that will always be a minority of teachers. I don't think teaching can be at a master's level profession for everybody. Um, certainly not in the shape it is right now.
2: Cool. I guess, the, I guess the conversation we're having here is one that teachers have about students. And in a lot of ways, that's talking about teaching process versus teaching conceptual understanding. Mm-hmm. it's a question of transfer research ed is in a lot of ways up against some kind of large corporations that are trying to implement research in schools in more of pe- perhaps I'm not involved myself but perhaps more of a procedural way we've got, we've got some, let's call them programs, we've got a teacher here ed who's in a school there implementing a program so I just wanted to hand over to ed to kind of sure. ask, ask a question he had in relation to that Hi Tom. Um, yeah, my oh, yes. school, my school does the McREL program. So we do we implemented across all of our teachers have to do the Classroom Instruction That Works program. And McREL is used to be with Mazano, so it used to it's the American program. And they're oh, basically yes, know, yeah. it's based on the meta-analysis type stuff. So they're getting every teacher very expensive professional development. So it's not for every school, but every teacher attends this program. And we're given, basically, the, like you said, the highlights of the good research. So we're given yeah. the highlights of yeah. feedback, the highlights of growth mindsets, the highlights of setting objectives and goals. Um, yeah, so that's how our school does it, but it may not be for every school, and that's a very expensive way to do that.
1: Yeah, I, do you want me to comment on that? I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know McRaele personally myself um, i know marzano reasonably well because he's done some pretty good work when it comes to um social norms cues and just classroom management in general so i do do rate his stuff i mean obviously whenever you say you rate something it doesn't mean you rate it uncritically but i rate his stuff It's, it's certainly really good work i don't want to comment on specific programs but i think that teacher training i mean anything that can make teacher training as inexpensive as possible is good i mean as long as the quality is high i don't mean just you know any old rubbish I long for a day when every teacher's basic core teacher training involves research principles, but also research-based principles, kind of like you're saying. You know, the highlights of things like you know growth mindset uh, and so on, so that so, so that it doesn't need to be some kind of expensive uh, fix in the cl- in the school in the classroom. I tell you, one of the most, and again, without wishing to knock any program, because everyone's got to make a living, I guess, but um, one of the one of the most inexpensive ways I have found of developing the profession is by getting people onto social media. I mean, I don't just mean, you know, having chats, but, but having constructive chats about professional development. Uh, and people have said to me that Twitter is... I know a guy doing a PhD in the UK, and he said that he's learned more from Twitter than he has from his PhD. You know, I mean, that, that, that's a kind of an awful truth, but I think it is true. And I love the fact that um, you guys may have heard of an organisation called the Deans for Impact. The Deans for Impact are an American organisation that tries to disseminate um again kind of highlights of cognitive psychology and I, I really rate them and they're really good people and they've got a they've got a, a, a they've got a something you can read called the science of science of uh, science of learning and it's basically kind of a summary of what we know so far in cognitive psychology or what we think we know about uh, you know teaching learning and memory and focus and so on and and that's free to look at as a pdf that anyone can download and look at things like that just by sharing them online it's incredibly cheap and it can become transformational. And especially once you get a taste for this kind of stuff, you do see some teachers really fall down the rabbit hole when it comes to teacher training in that respect. So it becomes more of an autonomous project for teachers. And let's face it, if we ever want to claim, if we ever want to claim ourselves as a profession, there has to be an element of, of, of autonomous self-development by ourselves, not just done to us.
2: Definitely. I'm pretty keen to drill down on this, on this Twitter thing because I know a lot of teachers here how great Twitter is and how empowering it can be. But I think at least the perceived barrier to entry for a lot of people is quite high. Uh, It's a new form of technology. You know, you've only got 140 characters or whatever it is. Um, And some people might wonder how how you're meant to engage. I know that for me, it took me probably four or five attempts at Twitter over a period of two or three years before (laughs) before I found out a way that for me works. So I was just wondering... Yeah. yeah exactly yeah I mean I use all the other platforms so I was wondering essentially I found that there was a lot of noise there are a lot of people trying to promote products there are a lot of people who yeah. would post a couple of interesting things but then they would post a few pictures of their cat um and I just found that you know you get like a thousand tweets a day or something it's like how do you find the good stuff so I just wanted to ask you maybe yeah. to give you a few tips on how you navigate that but even maybe down to the, the level of detail of who are some of the key
1: people that you follow Oh, God, I wish, I wish you told me this in advance. I could have made a list or something. All right, fast. That's um, I,
2: If you want to, you can jump on Twitter. We can wait for two minutes and you can pull up some
1: names. Yeah, that, that'd, be, that'd, be, that'd be gripping for you guys. No, no, it's fine. Don't worry. I'll do my best. Um, I also took a few attempts to get you know get good at Twitter. Mm. Uh, and like anything, it takes takes a while. It's like starting a new school. You know, you walk in, you don't know anybody. So what do you do? You walk up to the first person you want to chat to and you see if you can strike up a conversation, which can be terrifying. Um or you stand and wait in a corner until somebody speaks to you. That works sometimes too. But then you find the people you're talking to in the first instance you weren't too keen on and you'd rather talk to other people. That's fine. You make excuses so you go to the toilet and you talk to some other people, then you never return. Um, you know, you go for canopy. There's, canopy. There's, 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 it's kind of like that, but in, in a very um, uh, abstract way. You, you do what everyone does. You, you join Twitter and the first thing everyone does is they follow like five famous people <laughs> you know, and the BBC or mm-hmm. something like that, you know, or Russell Crowe, I don't know what you guys did. I was just to think of Australian first And uh, then, 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 then and then you can take it from there. And it builds, it just builds up. Man. But it takes it can it does take months. It's like getting to know people in an organization. But the weird thing is like, you know, so many people are on it that it's it's kinda like um it's kinda like plugging into everyone's I mean, you've seen like Donald Trump's stream of consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, I just thought this and I'm gonna tell the world BS. I mean, obviously it's it's kind of scary when someone's got nuclear launch codes when you piss them off, but it's kind of like that. You know, you you get this kind of of really odd sense of synthetic intimacy with people, but you just keep, you can block people who are rude to you. You can mute them if you want to block them, but you don't want to offend them. And you can follow people that you think are interesting. And then if they're not interesting, you unfollow them. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, there's four or five, it's, it's beauty lies in its simplicity. It's got four or five major functions like that. And I, and I really enjoy the challenge that the, the, the short statement presents because you've got to remember that every form has challenges and opportunities, just like every form of research has challenges and opportunities. There's great things about action research, but there's really, really difficult things about action research, and same with RCTs and so on. If you, if you want to um, use Twitter as a, a way of long-form argument, you know, you're going to find yourself in big trouble because it's really, really difficult to have... A solid lengthy constructive argument with lots of with lots of different threads and ideas because it's just not meant for that. It's meant for conversation. It's meant for you know bon mots and and and, and, and summaries and links to things and why don't we meet here and do things. It's a catalyst rather than than I would argue the meat of conversation. Mm. So that that's how I use it certainly as well. Some of the people you can follow. um, Gosh. Uh, I'm gonna think about the UK. Well the guy that really got me into Twitter was a guy called Andrew Old. He's called Old Andrew over here. And he is he's, he's kind of full of piss and vinegar, if you'll pardon my expression. He's kinda of, you know, he's really cynical and he's he's quite kinda of, he's quite kinda of dark at times. But he is he's got a mind like a steel trap. He's one of the guys that got me into writing professionally in terms of blogging and tweeting. Because I remember thinking, wow, people can say things like this about education and nobody will arrest you. And so I, I you know, really admired his boldness. Um, other people, there's, I mean, I've just got some personal favourites. There's a guy over here called Sam Friedman. He used to be um, one of the policy advisors at the UK government for education. And again, he's an incredibly smart guy. And he writes very wisely about education. Daisy Kustalulu is um, the, she was director of research at art schools in the UK. And now she writes mostly about assessment. She's one of the wisest people I know when it comes to assessment daniel willingham the cognitive psychologist from the university of virginia uh, professor daniel willingham sorry is again one of the best people you can follow in terms of just access incredible science uh, and research there's i mean there's loads of people a lot of the people i'm, I'm lucky enough to have met most of my idols now on twitter and and have kind of social relations with them so that so the conversations become easier but um, one of the beauties of twitter is that you can meet and talk to people that you would never have dreamed of before. You know, you, people in the UK can reach out to people like, you know, I was going to say John Hattie, but I don't, I'm not sure John Hattie's onto it. He, does, you know, that makes yeah, he, he doesn't do it too often. Or if he does, it's usually quotes. He's usually on quote posters because he's that, he's that level of notoriety and, and, and fame. Um, but, you know, you can, you can talk to people all the way around the world and famous people suddenly, you know, can I come up? So, yeah, it's a great, it's a great platform.
2: Cool. Yeah, I heard a quote recently, which was something like, MySpace is for the people you used to know, Facebook's
1: for the people you know, and Twitter's for the people you want to know. <laughs> is MySpace still exist? Oh, probably not. I'm fairly sure that died at death. Even I know that. I used to be in MySpace. That's how old it is.
2: Yeah, the people you used to know.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, by default, yes, they are.
2: Cool. Imagine a, you know, an early career or a, a really passionate teacher comes to a research ed conference and they, they get inspired. They get on Twitter. They start, to, they start to follow some inspiring people and get really engaged yeah. themselves. And then they, come, they, come, they maybe read your paper that we've all just read on becoming the school's research lead. And they yeah. think this is a really valuable position and something that their school could really embrace and could be really valuable. Do you have some tips for how they could approach Their school leadership to try to advocate for such a position at their school.
1: Yeah, absolutely Well, there's 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 two ways of doing this the formal and the informal way the formal way is to obviously approach somebody with Formal power in a school and say I would like to do this. Can you carve me out some space? Can you carve me out some salary good luck for that? But as with any kind of sales technique um, If if you're gonna get involved in marketing What you have to do is convince somebody there's a need and then sell them something that fills that need you know that that's what marketing all about you know see so if you, what you do is you, you 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 form a case and you speak to your school leaders your school governors your your school principal whatever it is and just say look this is going on in education a lot of people are doing things wrong a lot of people are, a lot of people are wasting a lot of time in the classroom which could be used more effectively in better ways i'm talking, i'm thinking more about pedagogy here than anything else but this also applies to school policies too um, although school leaders are a much tougher nut to crack when it comes to trying to get them to make their policies evidence-engaged. Because one of the, the things about leadership is that they don't want to be informed by anything else. They want to be informed by their own decisions. So you, so you can sell them the benefits of what our research can do for classrooms. And then you can suggest that perhaps you become one of a variety of types of research lead. I think that the beauty of the research lead is that there's different ways of being a research lead. Um, for some people, the research lead is a kind of, as I say in my article, a consigliere, you know, somebody who advises the head teacher and says, look, have you thought about this or have you read this research? Sometimes the research lead is somebody who does staff training, you know, who, who organises uh, staff training events for other members of staff in a kind of formal, formal manner. Sometimes uh, they do an audit of the school and try and find out what practices they do are research-based and which practices aren't research-based. You know, are they still using learning styles, for example? So it's, it's, there's different approaches to that. So you sell the benefit to your school leader. I would recommend, I mean, politically, I usually find that the best way to sell the benefit to somebody of anything is by doing it, you know, in an informal way. And that, that leads on to the second suggestion I would make, which is that if the school is resistant to pointing a research lead, or if the school doesn't see the need yet, or even before you've approached your school leaders, what suggests is you just do it. You just, you be the research leader type is in. Um, you can off your own back you can read papers you can attend conferences research ed conferences if you're very wise uh you can hold meetings after school to try and uh, encourage research, research literacy you can hold journal clubs where you just say to anybody on your school staff who's interested in reading this like what you're doing just now who's interested in reading this one article do you want to meet at four o'clock in the pub to discuss it or in the school to discuss it you know, you, you can start to share interesting papers that you found online with people in the school who may find it relevant. You just do it. And that's much more of a, a kind of a guerrilla style of becoming a research lead. Both of these roles have got value. The first role has usually got kudos, a place in the curriculum, and, and usually a salary. The second role, the beauty of it is, you know, nobody, you don't have to wait for anyone's permission or authorization. You just go ahead and do it. And that's, and that's kind of why I did the research. Head. You know, I didn't, I didn't wait for funding. I didn't wait for everyone to say, yeah, that's great. Do it. I just thought I'd do it and see how long we can survive. And, lo, here we are. And I've seen, for instance, in some schools in the UK, the research lead is is a member of the admin staff. You know, or the research lead is somebody who's a, a teaching assistant or, or, or somebody who's not in a formal teaching role at all, or any kind of significant power role in the school whatsoever. And I think that's beautiful because they just care enough about it. The key thing is you have to want to do it. You have to have an open mind and you have to want to... Uh, read as much as you possibly can. So, so we, a bit like the people who attend research ed conferences, we tend to aim for the, the, the edgy geeks, the edgy nerds. Cool. But here we are. Here we are around the table. <laughs> I,
2: I was wondering, just playing devil's advocate for a second, when I was reading the article, I had the thought that, do you think in any way a school actually appointing a research lead takes away the responsibility of other teachers to kind of take a research mindset into their own classroom?
1: I know that's a fair question. Um, And I'm obviously going to say, no, well, I'm hoping, uh, hopefully that's not gonna be the case simply because my experience of schools, and I don't know what you guys are like, I mean, I'm sure you guys go home and read research all the time. I'm sure that's, that's, you know, you do little else, Uh, but my experience with most teachers is they don't have much time to read much research And that for the vast majority of teachers, the research they read is what they read on their initial teacher training uh, with maybe something along the way. I mean, Dylan William wrote a book called Inside the Black Box about 12 years ago, a pamphlet, really. And the UK government loved it. And I think everyone in the UK practically had to read it. Uh, But that's very, very rare. And most people don't read these kind of things. And I think the research lead can only pretty much be be an asset to the school because they'll normally be a prompt. They'll normally be, have you read this? You know, have you seen this online? Uh, And that tends to be kind of value added to most teachers, uh, professional teaching programmes. So teachers have to try and carve some time out to read these kind of things. And the good thing is that the research lead can then suggest avenues for them to explore and as I say, it, it, tends to be, it tends to be slightly addictive that once you've started to think, well, why am I doing this this way? It's really hard to not think about that or think like that once you've started to be that kind of a teacher. So I'm going to argue that and the research is, is a catalyst rather than a, kind of a coercive a, a form of authority in a school. You yes, I'm
0: going to make a statement, not, a, not ask a Good question. Work. Good work. Oh, it's just that I've got this little thingy going on that I thought might be useful to talk about, not Twitter, but Facebook. I run a group on Facebook called people who like to talk about teaching. And basically my role in it is, is dredging up anything that's remotely connected to teaching and might be interesting and is reputable and research based and all that kind of stuff. I'm just wondering if it'd be useful for you.
1: To use Facebook or to use that site in particular?
0: Well, to use the site, because um, it's got 370-odd members at the moment. And yeah,
1: I'd love to, I'd personally, I'd love to see it. So if you can send me a link to this afterwards. Yeah, sure.
0: Uh,
1: I'd love to see it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always really keen to see resources. The thing we found with research it is there's, there's a whole load of people out there who are already doing great work in this area. You know, yes. Yes. Of, course, of course there are. And the beauty of sometimes what we have to do is just to link people to these kind of things. So I mentioned the Deans for Impact earlier on. They're a great organisation for this kind of thing. In the UK, you've got the EEF, but also that kind of Facebook page. That sounds very interesting. So, yes, yeah, same with that, please.
0: No, I've forced, I've forced some of the people in this room to read stuff from the deans. Room. Good. So, you but should. No, it's, it's just that it's there, and I every day I upload six, seven, eight things. That, and basically, if people, it would just fall into their Facebook feed, and they could look at it or not look at it, you know.
1: Facebook's a really interesting thing, because Facebook's got an even greater reach than Twitter, of course. There's far more people on Facebook than Twitter. And there's also different demographics on, 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 on Twitter. You find, for instance, in the UK, it's a particular type of edu nerd teacher that goes onto Twitter, whereas Facebook is a much, much, much larger presence, but a much, much less research engaged presence. Um, and it's something that we are looking to try and explore the possibilities of maybe this year or sometime. Oh,
0: well, OK. I shall send you a link to my like modest, there,
1: yeah.
0: modest little site and see if you think it might be useful for something.
2: You've mentioned the term edu-nerd a couple of times um, today. Don't me for
1: this, it's okay? And,
2: and, and, you know, I think that's naturally a type of people who engage with research, Ed. Yeah. Do you see, you know, and obviously probably a certain percentage of the population have a tendency to be re- um, teacher nerds and some don't have the same inclination. Do you see that as a kind of hard limit that at some point research ed is going to or perhaps has in the UK at that 4 or 5% run into
1: yeah I understand where you're coming from I I just think before I do not advocate every teacher to become a researcher and that's a good thing because people are passionate about different things and I know for instance there are people who will come into education because one of their big motivations will be inclusion or one of the big motivations will be their subject for example or one of the big motivations will be keeping kids off the street I don't know You know, we're all motivated by different things Uh, and some people are very motivated by pedagogy and the examination or self-examination of of their own practice and the careful examination of the community of practices that we engage in as a profession. And that's fine, you know, and I I don't want every teacher to have to think the same. I don't want every teacher to have the same appetites and tastes in the same way that I wouldn't want everyone in a similar society to have the same appetites and tastes. Um, I I enjoy the plurality of that. I enjoy the fact that some people enjoy or really get a kick out of educational research and talking about it and arguing about it. And, and, and trying to make changes for the better. I think that's fine. I think there's a lot more scope for it. I think that teaching is, is, is not yet an evidence-based profession. Uh, or I prefer to use the term evidence-informed because evidence-based makes it sound like everything you do must be, must be based on a piece of research. And that's, that's simply not the case. There's far too many things. I mean, Dylan William talks beautifully about this. There's far too many things you do in education which you'd never be able to get a clear answer about universal applicability. From an RCT, life isn't like that. Education isn't like that. D- Dylan William beautifully says, "Nothing works everywhere, and some things." Every, nothing works everywhere, and everything works somewhere. That's the that's the phrase. Thank you. Yeah, you see, it's, yeah. it's half past seven. I'm getting there. Um, and I think it's absolutely true. You know, if some people say to me, "Oh, what do you think about what does the research say about uniforms? What does the research say about group work?" And the answer I always have to give is, "Well, it kind of depends." You know, it depends on the context, depends on the school, depends on the demographic, depends on so many things. And, and, and when you're doing like an interview on radio or television, they don't want to hear that. <laughs> they want to hear it's good or bad. Totally. Yeah. But as teachers, we need to get beyond that. And we need to get more into the, hmm, it depends. And I th- I'm absolutely convinced that the more teachers were trained early on in their careers to be uh, critical assessors of education, the more we'd see people engaging more further on down their careers because mm. it's just been an automatic, natural thing for them to do. But having said that, it's not a path that everyone's gonna to want to take. Not everybody wants to be a research nerd, nor should they have to. Mm.
2: Right. So we've, we've mentioned the research nerds and we've, we've mentioned different approaches. I'm really curious about if we look forward now, if we kind of mm. predict the future, how, long's, how long has our research been going for now?
1: It's not long all. we started in 2013. Twenty thirteen, wow, so it's, it's know, a baby.
2: Three or three or four years. Three if four you years. look, you know, five, ten, maybe even twenty years into the future, what would you love to see Research Ed looking like? What would you be your... well,
1: <laughs> Well enough. we hope to relaunch as a as a charity in in the next few months and we've already got a, a board and patrons and so on all set up. So that we can try and scale up a little bit, because once you become a charity, obviously you can access um, different sources of resource and so on. I mean, right now we just struggle on from from uh, conference to conference, and we try and make do. So, if we had the capacity to scale up, uh, what I'd love to see is a research ed chapter in certainly in all the countries we've visited so far. So there was a a core group of people, uh, you know, some of whom could be paid. looking after this kind of thing and acting as research catalysts for the rest of the communities. Um, the, 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 the point here, a bit like being a head teacher or a principal, you don't want to try and make every change yourself in school. You literally can't do everything by yourself, Or you what you can do is help people to do it for themselves. And that's kind of what I want to see us doing. Um, we've already had some impact with the UK government in terms of uh, influencing the way in which teachers are trained in the UK um, and we've helped, I think, to popularise research in the UK, particularly, as, as something that teachers should be thinking about. So it's become much more part of the discourse over here, which we're very proud of. And I think that's what I would like to see research doing in five, 10 years' time. So a chapter in most of the countries we've been to, probably some that, that we haven't been to. I would love to see a, a national annual conference along the lines of the TED conference, but you know, but with brains instead of just a TED conference. Um, where, where people could come to and it was either free or near, nearly free to go to. I'd love to see research heads getting more involved in helping to guide teacher training in most of the countries we've been to and to offer a voice, to offer a, a, an opinion and a perspective about what teachers should be trained in and to utilise local talent to become part of that conversation. As I see, I, I don't see this as a controlling organisation. I see this as a facilitating one. And of course, at the end of those 10 years, I'd like to be living on my, on my own island in Scotland, which I will then call something ironic, like Feynman's Island or something. Yes. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's kind of where, where I, I, I see it going. And we've got a business model for the next five, 10 years, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll share it with you at a future date.
2: Perfect. Big visions, Tom. That's awesome. Um, zooming down again, you mentioned how you'd like to see chapters everywhere. I'm really curious to know, You know, if if when I say a successful chapter, you know, which chapter comes to mind, if any, and what are they doing? How frequently do they meet? How many people are involved? How many schools are involved? How do they out of this kind of stuff?
1: Well, right now, research ed is still very much a labor of love. And I love that because people that do it are doing it because they love it. You know, nobody's getting paid for this. And in a sense, that that guarantees you a certain type of person. It guarantees the type of person who really, really love doing what we're doing. Uh, I'll give an example over in America. Just now, we, we're working with a guy called Eric Collins. Uh, he's the author of Education's Upside Down, and he is just like the most passionate, enthusiastic person you can ever meet. You know how everybody puts on their on their CVs and bios, you know, passionate about. You know, Eric is passionate, and he does all this, you know, for free and for love, and so on. And he reaches out to people in 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 America, and he makes links, and he talks organisations, and he helped us pull together research in Washington a few months ago. And you know he's like he just he just he just runs on enthusiasm. That's his fuel. He doesn't eat. He just runs on enthusiasm. Over in um, in Scandinavia, or over in Sweden, you've got people like Sarah Hjelm and Eva Hartnell, and uh, and again they just love it. They just love what we're doing, and 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 they've got things that they're doing themselves, which they want to add to that. And in every country we go to, I find that the DNA of research ed kind of binds with the, the the DNA of these people and their cultural practices so you get a slightly different form of research in every country mm. uh, and, it's, and it's just great to see that so the people that have been with us have been with us for two or three years now and I can't see fingers crossed I can't see those relationships going anywhere unless we all get hit by a meteorite but I'd, I'd love to see us kind of consolidating that and just recompensing people for their time and, and making sure that we could carve some time out from them to make sure they could uh, contribute it towards research ed so, yeah, I would say the Scandinavian chapter and the American chapter in particular have been uh, fantastic. But also, over in Amsterdam, for example, in Holland, we've got a research at Amsterdam happening this weekend. And the people there have been working with uh, people like uh, Niels Tischar and Jan Tisha, his, his father, have just been you know, the most enthusiastic people ever. Um, they've attended almost every research conference in the UK. And then they thought, can we do this in Amsterdam? And they were so keen to do it. So I was delighted that you know we had these people who could bring their enthusiasm and their time because there's only so much I can do. But once once you unlock the capacity and talents of people to make these kind of things happen, it's amazing what you can make happen. It's absolutely amazing. I never thought we'd be where we are. You know, like I said, we have no capital, <laughs> you know, mm. and I have barely any time. But you know, it's amazing what you can do when you love it. That was an abrupt end to that paragraph.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Tom. So maybe so maybe. Okay. Maybe we'll step back from research ed now and just finish up with a, a f- three questions to kind of wrap up the interview a little bit more yeah. about, about you and kind of your, your ideas. So if we go back to your first year of teaching, say you could send a letter back to yourself in your first year, what would you put in that letter as advice to Mr. Bennett in his first year?
1: Oh God, that's, that's a terrible question. I can't believe you just spun that one on I me mean, as well. Um, I would, you know, I hope I say something kind of motivational, inspirational, like, you know, you'll get through this because I had a hell of a time. I had a really, one day you there. have an island. Eh? You, one day, <laughs> one day not, you have I'm an not, island. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Because that's really hard. Because, you know, the really weird thing is I, I used to write an agony uncle column online for, 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 new, for new teachers. And so I used to give advice all the time to new teachers. But what advice would you give to yourself? Probably, you know, be kinder to yourself. Look after yourself more. Okay. You know, get, maybe get some early nights. Lay off the smokes, <laughs> uh, which I did eventually. Um, don't blame yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't be so bloody uptight, you asshole. Uh, but, yeah, uh, but, but now we're getting into personal territory. <laughs> so right, maybe
2: maybe another way I could phrase the question would be, yeah. those, art, those articles, advice to early career teachers that you wrote, which one
1: did you share the most with people? Oh, okay. Fine. Fine. See, that's a much safer question. Thank you. We can ditch the psychology here. The, the most the most commonly asked question I had um, from from new starts was was what do I do about low level disruption? Low level disruption is the kryptonite for most teachers' uh, lessons because it doesn't look like it's much. It could just be you know chair rocking or pen clicking or something, but it's the it's the kind of stuff that drives teachers mad. And it's the fact that when, when when students don't aren't focused on your learning, what are they focused on, and how do you get them back to be focused? So that was that was that 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 was one of the key things that people would ask me, and I would usually try and get encourage them to implement some kind of routine into the classroom, keep the pace of their lesson high and make sure they were aware of where all their learners were in terms of um, their baseline understanding of the, of the topic. If you do those three things, you can usually retain as much focus as possible. You don't need gimmicks. You don't need to entertain the children. You don't need, you don't need to kind of distract them or, or, or give them a bit of sugar with every piece of medicine you give them. What you have to do is keep the pace right for the class. Make sure you know what they already understand. You've got to love your subject. Um, but make sure you get the behavioural routines in the class so that you head off most misbehaviour before it occurs rather than having to react to it, which is what I spent the first five years of my career reacting to poor behaviour, which is fine. You have to. But far better than that is to try and create routines in the classroom where the children just know what they should be doing at any given time. Cool. That's a Thanks. long letter to write.
2: <laughs> Thanks, sir. That's actually, for me, one of the biggest lessons that came out of my first year of teaching as well. Yeah. And it actually really surprised me how students seem to like routines that I thought were going to be really boring.
1: Yeah, of course they do. Of yeah, course they, they do. Just... We, we like to feel safe. We like, we like to know where we are is secure and stable. Everyone likes stability. And we, we, we only value stability when there's, a, when there's a chance of not having it. Mm. Uh, you know, when you look at the world right now, people are a bit unsure of where things are going to go internationally, especially as with Brexit as well. You know, people are kind of thinking, oh, the good old days when things were boring. You know, I quite like it when classroom routines are, 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 are so innate that you don't even know they're there. But you can see it as an outside observer. And, and children love it. And i tell you who, who loves it a lot more than people think is the children from the most challenging backgrounds are or the, or the biggest difficulties in their behavior. They want to feel stable and safe and secure. And a lot of times children misbehave because they don't feel stable and secure in their environment because they know it's chaotic and they react to that chaos by lashing out. Um, I digress.
2: All right, next question. Could you please finish this sentence? Oh, yeah, I remember Mr. Bennett. He's a teacher who... Oh.
1: He's a teacher with a weird Scottish accent. Um, I got called Mr. Doubtfire for the first three years of my career by Cockney students in London, the little bastards. Um, I'm kidding. I love them very much, and I still do. He's a teacher who used to tell us stories. I used to tell us stories. Because when I as I said I really struggled with behavior management when I started. And I, I tried I tried all the things I thought would work, you know, like shouting. And and then shouting again. And telling them how disappointed I was. You know, all the all the kind of crazy things we did. And then I realized that um they started to like my stories. I used to tell them stories about running nightclubs in Soho. Uh yeah, I know. Um in my religious studies lessons. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I used to try and make them relevant and the kids would go, all right, tell us another story, Mr. Bennett. Now, for them, it was a way of um, just avoiding the lesson. <laughs> but I found that I could usually tie it back into the lesson and make it uh, an example for the kids to talk about. That was my way in. Mm. I don't do that too much these days because, because you can waste a lot of time and you can be quite self-indulgent as a teacher, just mm-hmm. yakking on about, you know, your, your past passing your history. Mm-hmm. And teachers must never do that. You must never be vain and think this is your audience. They're not an audience, they're your, they're your students. But that was my way into classroom management, and it was a valuable lesson for me. Um, and even my, my A-level students, my older students, still say to me, you know, they either say, can you tell us a story? Or they say, can you stop telling us stories, please? We'd like to learn something.
2: Yeah.
1: So I'm the one, I'm the one that tells them stories.
2: Cool. If you could put a poster on the wall of every classroom in your country, what would it say? Uh, Yeah, you
1: asked me about this before, and I was. I hate inspirational posters, as I hate hell, all Montagues, and the, I hate inspirational posters. I hate the idea that an aphorism without context can have significant meaning for people, you know? Uh, And you see this on Twitter a lot. People Uh will share an image of a sunset or, or somebody doing this you know, and it'll see something like eat, pray, love, teach or something underneath and it makes me want to just jump off something high. You may as well post a picture of a kitten. Not there's anything wrong with posting a picture of a kitten. So I was going to say how much I, I hate that and then and then I realised that bizarrely enough um, there was a poster I once saw in a classroom and it was, like, it was a quote by Camus. It was something along the lines of um, I realised that even in the even in the darkest of winters there was within me, an eternal summer. And I remember being absolutely struck by that. So my, 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 my railing against inspirational posters has been undone because I remember I found one where, where there was a line. <laughs> it, it, it just killed me, it slew me. It slew me, I thought it was brilliant. But I wouldn't want that in every classroom. It's going back to my original rather cynical point because, um, because things like that just don't work. I mean, God, the number of schools I go into where Gandhi's on the wall, you know, and he's saying something along the lines of, you know, be the change you want to see in the world or you'll see a quote, you know, like a, a, a non-contextual quote by Abraham Lincoln or MLK or somebody like that. You know, these things are great, but at the same time, they have no impact on children. They just don't. Mm-hmm. Or maybe one in a million. But is that what you really want? I mean, what we should just acknowledge is that they things they're decorating the wall.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, So when you say what posters should I put up in every classroom, I'm going to be honest, I think if that be something really practical and boring, like, you know, if it was a a junior school, like the alphabet or something like that, or it could be um, keyword definitions Uh of something relevant to the classroom, because at least then you've got that kind of process of osmosis where it just gets absorbed. Mm. You know, and if you don't, if you can't think of any other poster to, to, to put there, then put a bloody mirror up there to reflect some more light so the classroom is a bit lighter, or just carve another window so you get some more daylight. That's probably the, more, the most useful thing you can do. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Some out of, the,
2: out of the box, out of the box answer. That's great. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. To add something. Or a big painting of me. That'd be great.
2: Do you have any calls to action for people, anything you'd like them to look up, read, sign on to, sign up to, just uh, as we close up the podcast today?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a hard sell, but these things don't cost money. But the first thing I already mentioned, which is the Deans, Deans for Impact paper in Science of Learning. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's one of the first things that people should be looking at because it's short, it's, it's accessible and it's written in teacher language and it tells people what they can do as a result. You know, it's here's what the science says, here's how it can affect the classroom. It's beautiful. to so read that. The second thing each, every teacher should read is Dan Williams, Why Don't Students Like School. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely brilliant. It's a great primer. It's a great introduction for anyone who's not a cognitive psychologist to understand more about the psychology of classrooms. The third thing I would say, and obviously I have to say this, but it's true, is I think people should log on to the Research Ed website where we have got um, scores and scores and scores of sessions that we've already filmed from Research Ed. Um, of people talking about a vast variety and range of things and it's absolutely free and people can download them and use them as they wish uh, and all the speakers have waived their rights to them so it's you know people can people can look at it for free there's not even a login or a sign in uh, and the fourth thing i would suggest is if you want to by all means sign up for a newsletter those are the four must do's for all teachers
2: no worries thanks so much for your time today
1: thomas been absolutely nice to chat all three of you Totally. And we, we hope... I feel like I'm being interviewed. There's this picture. I've got three people interviewing me right now. Yeah. And I just, I just hope I got the gig, you know, I hope I got the job. Nah, I'm very committed been... to this company. You've done a um, great job. Tom. I love, I love what you guys do. So, you know, thanks so much.
2: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the E triple R podcast. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at www.olilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this week's episode, please write a review on iTunes to help more people to find us. Thank you to the Australian College of Educators for their support in bringing this episode of the ERRR podcast together. Thanks for your time. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.